Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have a return guest, the ever garrulous Antonio Garrido. He is CEO of My Daily Leadership, a powerful roadmap for leadership success. Today we're going to be talking about leadership journaling. We're going to answer the questions of what do you write? How much time do you invest in it? When are you likely to see a return on investment? How do you know if it's going to help you? We're going to tackle really critical questions that you're not asking yourself, probably. Things like, am I preparing for what's to come? Am I future-proofing myself, my people, my business? How close to our potential are we performing as a team? How am I performing? How am I team performing? And how do I know I'm learning what I need to learn for what's to come? Because remember, a leader's job is to help people make progress. And in order to do that, you have to lead them through the chaos. And in order to do that, you have to help them link up the components and start creating the connections, because that's what chaos effectively means. And leaders are uh, responsible for taking you through that. So, Antonio, welcome. Hello again, Mark. That was a very good summary. Hello again. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, well, I think we're done now. Uh, thank you all very much. Goodbye. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, Antonio, uh, remind people a little bit about your background, please. So, yeah, great. Um, this <laughs> and you only have 60 seconds because I Yeah, this is going to be interesting to me, I think. Uh, when I came out of university a million years ago, I was, a, I was an architect. I was an architect for a little while. Uh, got involved in an organization that had such an inspirational leader. And one day he said to me, hey, listen, I want to make you uh, head of the division and later became head of uh, UK and Europe. But you have to go back to university and lead, learn something about leadership and business and all of that kind of stuff. So, which is which is what I did. So I then found myself by purely by luck rather than judgment, found myself off the drawing board, leading teams of people in a consecutive line of bigger and bigger and larger and larger and more and more complex organizations uh, to the point that I ended up leading for people in the UK, top 60 PLCs. And for people in the US, you'd probably call them, I guess, Fortune 500 companies because there is a big... Oh, 350s. Yeah, okay, fine. And then I guess uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, you and I met uh, in an organization called Sandler, which was, amongst other things, we spent our time drinking quite a lot. What's that? (laughs) Drinking quite a lot. Drinking, but also (laughs) coaching and trying to develop leaders, right? So, So I guess probably 25 maybe even 30-some years of uh, leadership growth, organizational development, I guess. Okay. So the last couple of years, obviously, you've been working on my leadership, uh, my daily leadership. So tell us a little bit about what caused you to write the book in the first place. So that's a good question. The thing that originally, I think the thing that sparked the flame was when I became the MD of one of those large organizations maybe 20 years ago. And uh, we talk about it in the book, but the summary is this. I got a job that quite honestly was slightly above my... (laughs) (laughs) Been there, seen it. Yeah, it was genuinely (laughs) good (laughs) now. And there, there were reasons why I got the job, and it was more political than anything else. Anyway, so I was certainly, certainly over-punching my weight. So I was promoted to this to this role, and I came into work on day two, I think. And, of course, the chairman of the group was instrumental in, in me getting the role. So, I mean, he knew, right? Mm-hmm. But on day two, I got to my... Uh, desk in the morning and there was a, a memo because this was before emails right <laughs> old school memo time, yeah. right? and he said when you get a memo just pop along to my office so okay. I did. so I popped along to his office and he did he 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 was very <laughs> it was like very gnomic at times incredibly wise really inspired inspirational 
leader, one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. So great example. But anyway, so he, he asked me, he said, hey, let me ask you a question. Have you ever worked for a really cruddy leader? <laughs> I said, yeah. I mean, like everybody has, right? So I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, okay. And he leaned across his desk and he got a piece of paper and he got his fountain pen, <laughs> put his fountain pen on the, and he slid it across his rather imposing, <laughs> imperious desk. And he said, well, just write down all the kind of attributes of <laughs> the crappy leader you've ever worked for, right? So, so that's a bit bizarre. So I wrote down four or five things. I wrote down four or five things, slid it back. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then slid it back again and said, write some more. So I wrote some more, slid it back again and said, give it one more college try and, and write some more. So I, I had a list of about 15 things. And we all know what leadership dreadfulness looks like, right? So we can't even imagine it could be place favorites, micromanagers, <laughs> inconsistent bullies. You, we all Does know. the work for you? What's that? Does the work for you? Does the work for you? Yeah, right. Doesn't lead managers, uh, use of directed authority, but usual. We all know what, we've all worked for those people. And it was really, it was kind of easy to write this list of leadership dreadfulness. So he then said, he then looked at the list, studied it very carefully, and he said, yeah, that is what terrible, terrible leadership is. So I was thinking, yeah, okay, good. I think, have I passed my first test? I was thinking. He said, will you do me an enormous favor? <laughs> so I said, uh -huh. yeah. He said, whilst ever you're running this company, can you promise never to do any of that shit? <laughs> that, was, that was his like it was like day two right and i went yeah okay then I, i've introduced that into my recruitment process so at the first interview my first question used to be over to you but now i've decided my first question is draw up a list of all the things attributes of a shit salesperson shit manager. oh nice yeah. right so yeah. it's exactly the same yeah, yeah so then he said keep that in your pocket and keep it with you at all times. And every time I see you in the corridor, I'm going to ask you about it. So keep it with you. So this is the most bizarre thing ever. <laughs> I then worked really hard, genuinely, to make sure I had this thing laminated, right? I worked really hard to make sure that I never did any of this stuff. And of course, I did do this stuff. Anyway, long story short, about six months later, the organization spent about a quarter of a million pounds back in the day when a quarter of a million pounds was a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for those of you operating now, that was around probably uh, nearly $450,000. Uh, right. uh, so that's, that's when the pound was worth something. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Last and now week. they're made of plastic. You can't even wipe your ass with them. Not with, I know. Aren't they awful? So <laughs> they were doing this whole engagement, you know, employee engagement survey 360 and all of that kind of stuff. And and turns out the organization, the people in the organization, was about 17,000 people, and they didn't trust the directors. And I was one of them. In fact, I was in charge of them. But recognized that all of these issues were inherited by me and partly before my time. Here's the point. So the chairman came into the boardroom just after this thing had been released, and it was like the New York Yellow Pages. And again, if you're old enough to know what the Yellow Pages are, <laughs> I'm talking about. Uh, but there was a summary, and this summary hit my desk just before the board meeting. Uh, for, for those of you listening on audio, he had about a three-inch high pile for the... <laughs> The yellow pages, and then yeah. about a one-inch high pile for the summary. This yeah. may not have been that short a summary. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it was about maybe 100 pages, the summary. And I just quickly <laughs> rifled through it, right? Quickly rifled through it. Anyway, so we got to the board meeting, and the chairman walked in. I said, has anybody read the uh, report? And I went, well, I read the summary. And there was lots of shuffling of feet. And he said, come on, guys. People don't trust us. We're screwing up. And then he said, everybody get your lists out. Right. And the, yeah. the exercise that he did yeah. with me, he did it with everyone. <laughs> and we all had our own individual list, but largely the same list, right? Maybe a slightly different order of the like. And he said, We are in this position because you guys, there's 13 of us, right? Around this table, you guys have been doing the things on your list. And he yeah. said, and Really, the thing is, people don't trust us. And then he talked about this whole thing about 
you know, trust is like, if, if you imagine cupping your hands and holding water and how hard you have to guard that and how easily you can lose the water and then you can't get it back up off the floor and into your hands, right? But anyway, the point is, Marcus, to answer your question, that started my journey of considering what leadership excellence was all about. Starting, like you do in your interviews, from a recognition of what's leadership dreadfulness all about. And let's let's go the, the other way, right? So that's how the whole thing started. And then I not only have worked for tremendous leaders and some <laughs> particularly ropey ones, and then you and I, just because of the jobs that we've both been doing over the last 10 years, we've also coached some tremendous leaders and some dreadful ones. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that occurred to me, more, more one than the other, right? We'll leave it at <laughs> The thing that occurred to me was about maybe eight years ago, one of the key differentiators, and there aren't a lot, but one of the key differentiators between those, let's say, world-class leaders, and I mean world-class, you know, best in class, world-class, great, you know, excellent, great, all the way down to kind of average and poor. And, if you uh, ever... and is that across the board on all the criteria and not just weighted towards? Well, so... right. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the key one in, in a second. Typically when I've been coaching leaders, one of the very first questions I've asked them is what kind of a leader do you want to be from poor, average, good, very good, world-class, best-in-class, right? right. What kind of a leader do you want to be? And they all say, oh, best-in-class, world-class, right? So, okay, great. What are you doing about that? And then, again, lots of embarrassed shuffling of feet. The key differentiator for me that the picture I started to, to paint was that those leaders who were at that really at the high end of the scale, those, those really excellent ones, had a very high level of self-awareness. And that was one of the key differentiators. And I was thinking, how do we help leaders build their self-awareness? And it speaks to, if I can share another story, that would be... Would that be yeah, okay? please. Because the same thing needs to go for salespeople and management. Let me make this point before you go yeah. into your story, because I think this is really important. One of my frustrations with the training industry across the board... Mm -hmm is pandering to customers' desire to learn technique, which is really a failure on yeah. behalf of the training industry to serve their customers because they teach the technique. And so people use it to manipulate. They use it as a weapon. They yeah. never learn it from the raw principles of how they project out and are received by the other person and then it's reflected back. Yeah. And that's why so many, I mean, I, I remember in my days in Sanda, you know, in my prospecting time, often I would hear, uh, oh, I don't want anything to do with Sanda. I've had, they're pushy, they're rude, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, um, what's really interesting is when Challenger, uh, when the Challenger first came out, the study that they did found that 50% of top performers had a challenger style to their selling. Yeah, but yeah. The study only covered the top and middle performers. Later, there was a, a study that covered top, middle, and bottom performers. And 50% of uh, poor performers also had a challenger style to their selling. So if you turn up and you're an ass, the technique is going to backfire on you um, because your intent is wrong. You're not there to serve the customer. And I think far too few salespeople are trained in self-awareness. And as a result, when they move into management, they are completely lacking in self-awareness. And when the Peter principle applies and they get promoted into uh, leadership, they're not only uh, lacking in self-awareness, but they've forgotten how hard it was and how few people made it through. Uh, so they're squandering resources. And yeah. that, I think one of the things I would add to the journal is um, where do I uh, routinely waste resources because of old beliefs okay can i get there yeah can i get there so, uh just this this two just a two bus stops and a quick walk across across the park no no, no I, i'm in your hands now okay I so have, to have a rant okay <laughs> no good rant very it's almost people will think i bloody set that up so about two and a half years ago i was doing uh one of our talks that you and i often did with some of our larger clients, all of the leadership people were there. Rather, I'm sorry, that was not true. It was a leadership, it was a talk that was all part of a couple of days leadership for uh, arranged by other people. So there were like four or 500 leaders in the room. And I was doing a, a leadership 
talk from the stage. And uh, I decided, because I thought the room was a little bit flat, just as I was about to start, because the guy that preceded me was just as dull as ditch water, right? So I thought, if I go with what I have, which sometimes leadership can appear to be a bit of a dry subject, it's going it, it, to, it, you know, I, I just wanted a bit more energy. So I slightly went off script. The AV guys had a conniption fixed. I said, we're not going to bother with the deck. Right. <laughs> they had the whole deck set up, right? I said, just give me the just give me the opening slide, and then we're just gonna we're just gonna uh, riff it. So I asked four hundred, let's say four hundred and fifty leaders. I said, uh, quick question for everybody: Who here, by a show of hands, doesn't have any leadership blind spots? So let's just parentheses brackets time out just for one second. So this this starts to speak about uh, self awareness, right? So if anybody were to put their hands up, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, we would know how bad <laughs> leadership self awareness was. Thankfully, nobody put their hands up. I said, okay, good, you've all passed the first test. So well done. So we all know that we have leadership blind spots. Terrific. Now then. Second exercise, just all take out a, uh, you know, a pad, a piece of paper. Can you write them down? Can you write down what your leadership blind spots are? Now, suddenly, everybody's like entirely confused because they know that they must have some leadership blind spots because these guys are pretty good. And, but then you ask them what they are, and now they don't know because if they did know what they were, then they wouldn't be a blind spot, right? So it's uh, so did it's you a, give them the easy out? And what are the blind spots you see your colleagues have? <laughs> Do you know what I didn't? That's that's true. <laughs> so I, yeah, I wish I'd have the presence of mind to have done that. So 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 let's think about that just for one second. Every leader has some blind spots. So the point one, this comes back to the self-awareness. Point two is they don't know what they are. They don't know what their blind spots are. So that's another important key. Third important key is the, and again, in the roles that we used to have, Marcus, we were not oftentimes, but sometimes we were asked to help people find new managers and new leaders. And we'd go mm -hmm. on a, we'd go on a, on a hunt for them and we'd go and do some headhunting and we'd go and find some people. I also, in my previous life, was a non-exec of a very successful recruitment company. So I knew all of the kind of the ins and outs of that sort of world. And I would interview a leader and the leader would say that they had 15 years leadership experience. And again, we see this in sales and we see yeah, this yeah. in management. What they really mean is... One year, 15 <laughs> times over. Right. Okay. So the third point that then occurred to me was that this principle that wisdom doesn't come from time served. It comes from evaluated experience, right? Not just time served. So we now connect self-awareness, included in that is emotional intelligence, including in that is blind spots, including in that is wisdoms coming from evaluated experience, not just time served. About two years ago, I thought, there has to be a better leadership model than all the ones available. And I had a look for them all. And I decided to do almost the opposite task of that first task I mentioned, which was, well, let me write down, let me model what are the common traits of truly world-class leaders. Thinking okay, about- Okay, so spill the beans, what are they? <laughs> okay, so, well, there are, there are 20, but in groups of four or so five categories. So let's 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 cover them in no particular order. The best of the best, which is what you know we're all shooting for. And I'll come back to that a little bit later on because what how do we measure it? What is the best? How do we know? And all, so we'll talk about how we're going to measure all of that stuff in a minute. But if anybody wants the quick ready rationale of what, what is a great leadership. So it it looks something like this. It's somebody committed to uh, people development. So the, in no particular order. So your job as a leader is to improve yourself, improve your people, and improve your business, right? So you can't do that. Nothing happens other than through a team of people. So people development is, is critical. So those that have a genuine, genuine drive for people development, and we talk about what the four major components, you know, criteria are for that, which we'll come on to later if you want. 
So there's people development. So how much time are you actually, what what commitment are you making to developing your people? A lot of people pay lip service to it. And a lot of people just target the higher echelon. A really good question is, tell me, where does culture appear on your standing agenda for meetings? Yeah. So we talk about culture a lot in the book. Have we mentioned the book yet? You might have. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, so don't worry. People will get to know what the title is. Okay, the good. Final plug. Every other one's going to be edited out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll, talk about, we'll talk about culture as a key piece in a second. So people development, critical. So the best of the best. The best really don't just pay lip service, but commit to people development. Next piece is company development. And that's not just taking the company to new levels right, which is what they think, you know, goals, KPIs. Company development is about what are you doing to improve company processes? What are you doing to improve company vision, mission, goals? What what does your short-term planning look like, your medium-term planning, and your long-term planning? How are you industrializing, scale, pivoting, refresh? How are you doing all of that kind of stuff? So that's Uh, Well, let let me just add to that. Yeah. Whilst not losing the human element, because the thing that seems to have been lost over the last seven years is we've seen performance plummet. Bear in mind, average quota performance has gone from 65 to below 40% in the last seven years. At the same time that we've had this explosion of technology allegedly to support us as a professional. So I'll tell you why in a minute. (laughs) Well, I'd be curious about your opinions on it because I'm very... Okay, okay. Um, I, I think it's really important that when you're thinking about the company, you're looking at the long-term sustainability of the business. And what you're trying to do is build resilience into it. You're trying to build engagement into the business. And you're also trying to build lots of discretionary effort because that's what talented, excited people get. Yeah, engaged individuals. Okay, cool. So company development. Third component is self-development. That's the leader developing themselves. There's a lot of leaders go, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and I've done it. I can't tell you how many times I've done it, Marcus, when I've said, so does everybody around here, do they have, like, you know, PDRs, personal development reviews? Yeah, yeah, they all got a learning path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How often do we look at it? Is it just once a year? And is it put in a drawer, then pulled out, six, you know, 12 months later, or is it reviewed very regularly? And the best of the best go, no, no, it's a working living document reviewed very regularly. I said, okay, terrific. Is it linked to pay? No, good. So it's not just my salary review will be reflected in my leadership develop in my uh, personal development file. No, good, 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 good. Okay, well, let me see yours. And they go, uh, yeah, when I said everyone in the business, I meant everybody apart from me. And you go, okay. So self-development, important point. And one really good tip. Yeah. Make sure you use your calendar as your development plan. So anything that you're planning to do in terms of your learning and development, make it an appointment with yourself. And it is the most important appointment that you have on your calendar. Because if you don't do that, sorry, go on. Or in your journal. Uh, No, it has to go into your calendar as well, though. If it's not in your calendar, you aren't going to fucking do it. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. My life is run by my calendar. If it's not in the calendar, it doesn't exist. exist. Yeah, I agree. And again, you come to sales and then you say, okay, what's, What's the next step of the process? And they go, da, 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 da. you go, okay, show me where that is in your calendar. And if they can't, then it doesn't exist. So yeah, exactly. Okay. So next one is strategy development. So here's the thing. Most leaders from all the ones that we interviewed, we interviewed a bunch, they know how they solve problems. What they don't know is, so strategy development is about solving problems with tools and mental models. And they, they only know the tools that they know but they don't know other other critical tools. They don't know what they don't know. Exactly. So, and then it's strategy planning, strategy execution, measure, review, course correct, all of that kind of stuff. And then the last, go ahead. Well, just one thing on that. Again, if you're going to uh, be a a strategist, you need to have many eyes on the problem. With just you looking at it, you become a bottleneck. And chances are, as the pressure mounts, you become more and more brittle and you snap. And that's how you go into burnout. So 100%. this stuff is protecting your future. Yeah. We talk about it in the, and I'm still coming, going to come back to those two points. That I mentioned. You- we talk about it also in the book. Napoleon had a tremendous 
strategy for dealing with that, and, and it's called the idiot general. And here's what happened. So they're besieging a city, and they're all in the tents outside the city that they're going to try and occupy. And he learned pretty quickly that anything he said, people tended to agree with. And I'm not saying because he signed their <laughs> salary checks every they, week. They were yes men. Now, it's interesting. I saw a great, I saw a great interview once. President Bush Sr., who's now no longer with us, but he was no longer the president of the United States. He, he probably finished about six months beforehand. But in America, they still call ex-presidents, hey, Mr. President, right? Yeah. They still call them Mr. President as if it were in the present. But anyway, there you go. So he'd just been, just been playing a pro-am golf tournament, right? And he walked off the 18th green and some, somebody put a, a camera in his face and said, how was the golf, Mr. President, right? And he stopped for a second and he said, it's interesting how many games of golf I've lost since no longer being the president of the United States. He thought it was like one of the best golfers on the planet. So and Napoleon figured this out, right? So what he said was, and it's also how NASA now changed the way that they launch rockets and Musk after the Challenger issue. So, so Napoleon would send out one of his generals that everyone else would then figure out the plan to you know, attack the city, call the idiot general in. He's, he's only given the name, the moniker, idiot, because he didn't know any of the planning. He didn't know which components were Napoleon's ideas right, which components were anybody else's ideas. And his job was poke holes in this plan. I call it red teaming. Yeah, prior, red teaming. yeah so it's that prior to any pitch uh, right. or any important meeting, any important negotiation, uh, any right. important conversation, if you don't rehearse it and then pull it apart, go yeah. looking for why your thesis is broken. Right, right, right. That's so the Napoleon. best lesson I've learned this year. So that was like Napoleon's, that particular military strategy i mean this did france have more resources than any country in the world more men but i mean you look at you look at russia now and ukraine right there's like no real reason that ukraine should be doing so terribly well against against the russians because they they have issues russia has issues with morale they have issues with planning they have issues with yes men right they have all leadership of those with leadership yeah, of course, right? So anyway, so we've got this strategy development piece that's really important and this self-awareness and this, all these things are kind of linking together. And then the last piece was leadership development. Your job as a leader is to make more leaders, right? Not more managers. And so what does that look like? Anyway, to answer your question, we put together this model of what does world-class leadership look like? And if anybody's listening and wants to, and, and we a proprietary unique assessment for these things, including your own self-awareness quotient and all that kind of stuff. And if anybody wants to figure out where they are on this scale of kind of good to great, then they should think about taking Well, put it. me through it and then I'll give raw unvarnished feedback about it first of yeah. all. And then, and better still, if you want, then debrief my profile live on air. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. No, yeah, nice. let's okay. do that because I'm I'm open to the fact that I'm not a particularly great leader. I'd love to hear how this works in practice because this sounds yeah, yeah. really interesting. So now let's come back to the point that you made earlier, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite business stories is now taught at Harvard in terms of recovery. Is the everybody's heard of Lego, right? So you know the yep. the, the toy, okay, right? Americans call it Legos, which I find really unsettling. But anyway, so Lego, the organization, was close to annihilation. So you and I, Marcus, when we were, we're of an age, when we were young, a Lego kit looked like about 20 or 30 white. And if you were really lucky, some red and blue box, right? That was kind of it. In a, in a, in a you, box. you obviously were in a more deprived area. I had more colors than that. Oh, okay. I had the flat grey boards. Well, oh, green. right. Okay, yeah, and the yeah. green boards as well. Yeah, yeah. So we we were posh. <laughs> nice. Now Lego is really it's really difficult to make. Really difficult to make. It's not only made of a terrible 
<laughs> like oil-based. It's like it's a terrible material. It's really difficult to make. The colors have to be precise. It's almost pharmaceutical grade manufacturing in high pressure, high temperature molds that as soon as they degrade in the slightest piece where that means that my piece won't click on another, every single piece yeah. has to click every single time. Everyone has to be perfect. And it was really difficult to make. And they were about to go bust. What Lego did was they went outside the family because it was a family organization forever. And in about the 80s, they employed a new CEO outside the organization and said, help save the company. So this leader, whose name escapes me, but you'll be able to have a look at it when I tell you the story, started looking at the organization from top to bottom, put together this principle of people development, company development, and self. All right, okay, the, the, the usual kind of stuff, but build, built the whole turnaround of the company on one principle. And the principle was collaboration. Now, collaboration means that, and the best leaders do better. So they make collaborative enterprises, not just cooperative enterprises, right? So we talk about it a lot. We measure your your. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I have a different definition because I think most collaboration is done at arm's length. It's not done through real trust. It's often done through thick legal documents if you're working with the channel or your partners. And re- true cooperation is where you're all working towards common purpose and you're playing an infinite game, so you're trying to keep the game going. I agree. It's there just are... a, it's semantics, but um, just well, so as long as we're, we're clear... Your, your definition of collaboration appears to be my definition of cooperation. Okay, well, let's let's break that down, okay? okay. Um, and there are some that pay lip service to it. And, and for all of these things, if they, if they are not embedded in the core values of the leader in the organization, then they are going to fail. So let's just let's just pretend for a second that somebody somebody does bake in this collaborative, principle or component to you know the future state of the organization and then okay so they see it but how did they then live it so the lego guys <laughs> right they they went from a principle of cooperation and cooperation so i'm going to give you some definitions right so well let's just take it from the worst to the best so the worst to the best is you know our people communicate this is bad. So communicate is, you know, I'll tell you, here's what's going on. Lots of, you know, meetings, da, 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 da. We, we communicate. So everybody knows what's going on. And, and really bad leaders think, well, leadership is all about communication, right? It's like, no. Beyond that, so communication is like, that's like your entry level. That just gets you a seat at the table. But that isn't the be all and end all. That isn't what we're after. So if you can't communicate, you shouldn't be in the job. So okay, good. Neither should your, you know, your board or your managers. So communication is the least of it. Coordination then is a is a higher bar, right? Just beyond communication is coordination, which is like we're starting to coordinate what people are doing and resources and resolving conflict and resource allocation and all of that kind of stuff. And now we're entering the world of management as opposed to leadership. That's coordination, like tasks and goals and, and, and congruency and all of those things. Cooperation is you guys work with the you guys over here work in cooperation with these people over here to help us achieve. So now we, instead of having siloed mentalities, we have we have organizations or divisions and, and groups of people who are cooperating in terms of some joint shared objectives. Great. And that, again, isn't, isn't our nirvana. Go beyond that to this principle of collaboration where people start to say, how can I help? in a way that will go right down to sharing resources, which could be people and time and effort and energy and money and all of those good stuff, which is how can I help you, where people are starting to cooperate. There is a tremendous TED Talk. There is a tremendous TED Talk which explains how in the, I think it was 1986, the Olympic, the world four by 100 meters French relay team, um, they beat the Americans, right? Which is 
impossible. It's like, you know, like scientists can prove the bees can't fly. Yeah. So it, it was impossible for the French team to beat the American team because the American team had the four fastest people on the planet, <laughs> four fastest women over that distance on the planet. The French had the four slowest in the final. The, 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 the American team, each of their personal bests was significantly faster than the French team on their best day. <laughs> right? yeah. so, so like even if each of the French ran their best ever of their whole life, it was still slower. Mm-hmm. Than, than the, but I, like no way it was going to, uh, they were going to win. And yet they won. Why? Because the coach of the French team said, look, our objective isn't to run 100 meters as fast as you can as an individual. Our objective jointly is to get this baton over there as quickly as possible. If we don't it's understanding them. the job, the real job to be done. Correct. Correct. And not, not just your individual goals, KPIs, right? It's like that broader thing. So the guy from Lego said, here's what's going to get you fired around here. You won't get fired for screwing up, which is what the previous <laughs> management team would like. If you fail in your tasks, you're out of here. The new guy said, no, if you fail in your tasks, that's okay. So this whole fear culture was was killed, was turned on its head because, because fear kills cooperation, co- collaboration, creativity, because of people, you know, for fear of screwing up and, and retribution and blah, 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 all that usual uh, stuff. Anticipated buyer's remorse again. Yeah. In the yeah, sale, yeah, yeah. most yeah. of your losses will be a closed loss to no decision because yeah. you lose to anticipated buyer's remorse. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, very definite, maybe. <laughs> so, so they said, look, no one's going to get fired for failing. You will get fired for failing and not asking for help. That's an entirely different thing. So if you're failing and don't ask for help, you'll get fired. The other reason you'll get fired, there's only two reasons you're going to get fired. Apart from gross misconduct coming in and punching someone on the nose, you'll get fired for, for not asking for help. And the other reason you get fired is if you see someone struggling, you don't offer to help, right? So it makes it a two-way street. And people started at every single point, every single meeting, every single conversation, every single memo, every single principle, the number one principle, the number one question, the number one ethos was, how can I help? Where people are, people will see people and say, okay, how can I, how can I and my and then at manager level, how can I and my people, my resources help you? And people start to collaborate. And a collaborative team just far every time outperform a cooperative team. Go ahead. This is like really interesting. Well, I'm Go seeing ahead. a pattern here, uh, which is that typically what the leader does is they rally everyone around a single objective. Yes, they do. Uh, and everyone understands that their job is to play their part in executing that job. And they have the creative freedom to work out the how for themselves, because otherwise you're going to end up with managers becoming bottlenecks and breaking. But you, in order for that to happen, you need to learn to give trust. Yep. And you need to learn to give up control. Now, how how do you sell that to leaders who've grown up for the last 40 years with a command and control mentality? And that's the trick. That is the nub of it. If you believe, if anyone listening believes that, yeah, a collaborative organization would do better than a coordinated one, right, as an example, then it takes an enormous amount of bravery for the leadership team to do that. And it comes down to this trust. So. When we're thinking about the thing that separates the good from the great, right? It what's the leader's task? What it comes down to? What is the leader's job? So let's just let's just unpick that just for a second. So on a very simple basis, you know, you so if you ask people what's leadership all about, and you ask leaders, you say, "What's your job?" <laughs> well, you'd be amazed at the, how many of them don't know. You say to leaders, "So okay, so what's your job?" So, oh well, I, I lead this. Okay, well, so. Unpick that for me. The okay ones <laughs> say, well, I guess my I guess my job is to make decisions. 
okay, okay. So leaders make decisions. I get it. We all know that. Some of them say, well, it's about it's about vision. So, oh, okay. So that's what does that mean? Well, you know, describing a vision that everybody understands. I said, okay, do they understand it? Do they care about it? Do they have to care about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, they have to care about it. Okay. So what are you doing to make sure that people care about this vision of yours? And then shuffling your feet, right? Embarrassed looking asconce. So so they making decisions they know. And then when you ask them, does every decision have to be good? Then they're not quite sure what the answer to that is. If you ever read <laughs> Bill, Bill Clinton's autobiography, which is pretty good, uh, you might not have liked Bill Clinton's politics. He was a very good orator in the same way that Obama was. But Bill Clinton figured out that whilst ever you're the president of the United States, and that is a leadership job by any measure, right? Probably a pretty important one. Dealing with some of the most intractable problems on the face of the planet, you know, between the Palestinians and the Jews and terrorists and monetary policy and defense and all of that good stuff, right? And and Afghanistan and all of those things at the time. Some of these are the decisions that can only be made by God. <laughs> He's not God. So he said, I guess the best I could possibly do on a good day is seven out of 10, right? <laughs> and I have to think that my seven out of 10, if I make seven good ones for three howlers, that the seven good ones will outweigh the howlers. When you give leaders that permission, when they go, yeah, not every decision has to be exactly the right decision, because then you get into analysis paralysis and all the anxiety associated with all of that, then that starts helping them starts just to tilt the balance towards towards this collaborative uh, principle. Then you get the principle of, are are any of you better than all of you? No, (laughs) right? Okay, so does does every decision have to involve you personally? No. Do the very, very big ones have to involve you personally? Well, I'd like to be told, yeah, but do you have to make that decision? And so... What you then start to get is is pushing decision-making down because, as you said, bottlenecks and speed and all of that kind of stuff, love it. Then you come to your principle that you've mentioned three or four times, this principle of trust. Now, it's interesting when you talk to leaders and you say, do people trust you? And he says, oh, yeah, I think so. I said, well, should we measure it? So I said, well, how can we measure it? So I'll tell you another quick story. About 10 years ago, no, 12 years ago, I was in my office. And the chairman of the group came in and he said, did you know, he said, because he liked to trap people, did you know that this particular individual was off this morning to go to her uncle's funeral. Did you know that? I said, no, I, I didn't know that. He said, how did you not know that? I said, well, nobody told me. And does it matter anyway? What do you mean, does it matter? He says, of course it matters. Because we have a policy. We have a funeral. We have, we have a policy for this. I said, oh, what's the policy? So he said, do you mean you don't know the policy? I said, no, I didn't, I didn't write the policy. What does the policy look like? And he went and got his policy for um, compassionate leave. There was a compassionate leave policy. And in this policy, it said that you could take time off paid for if your parents died and if your children died, a grandparent died, and that was it. But he said, like, uncles aren't in here, and da 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 aren't in here, and da 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 aren't in here, and here are all the people. So what are you going to do about it? So I'm probably going to throw that policy away. <laughs> so he said, oh, you mean you're not going, like, you're going to have a talk with her tomorrow? I said, I probably am. He said, oh, good. I'm going to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Right? And he was completely missing the point. We would, play, we would often play this game of, like, chess. Yeah. So leaders, if you want to know whether your people trust you, go have a look at your policies. If you're, if you look like the ministry of, insert what you do for a living, your organization, then you don't trust your people. And if you don't trust your people, then they don't trust you. It's a bit like I'll say to a leader, what's your strategy for truth? And they'll go, what do you mean? I said, well, 
what percentage of the time do your people tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And they go, oh, I don't know, maybe 70%. I say, okay, is that, you, you're okay with that number? And I say, what, what you'll discover is they tell you a version of the truth that they think it's in their best interest to have you believe. That's what they're telling you, right? The real magic is in the 30% they're not telling you. Why aren't they telling you that 30%? And he goes, I don't know. Why aren't they telling me that 30%? I said, well, well, how often do you tell them the truth? How about your strategy for truth starts with to always tell the truth? He says, I do always tell the truth. I said, it's funny that because somebody said to me just yesterday when we were doing an audit, right, when we were doing leadership audit, we found out about the latest acquisition when it hit the newspapers. They must have known about that for weeks and months, maybe even years. So why did we find out when, when, when the world found out? Well, it's very difficult, and they all go into they all go into that leadership, what I call the trinity. Yeah, the trinity, the holy trinity of leadership, you know, dreadfulness, defend, justify, and rationalize, right? They go into like, oh, well, it has to be this way because of this. No, it's that way because that's the way that you decided it could be, but it could be a different way. So So, there's a really good question to ask, and you frame it this way. How do we behave around here when X happens or when people do this? And that is incredibly telling. And you have to start picking away at your own processes and policies because what tends to happen over time, you will start moving towards inevitable inertia if you're not constantly reviewing these policies and these behaviors that have become entrenched and habituated without planning. One of my favorite things from our time together was uh, I remember uh, someone saying, your business is perfectly designed today to deliver precisely the results that you're getting. And if you haven't designed it, of course, it bloody well is. <laughs> yeah, it's that by design. Yeah, exactly. So coming back to this point, principle of, tr- of trust, that trust isn't, it, it isn't given, extended, just as a consequence of, you've got the car parking space nearest the front door, right? But, and that, that's not where that comes from. It's, that's entitlement. And that, yeah. again, in terms of leadership, it's well, in terms of humanity, it's one of the ugliest qualities. Yeah, yeah. So we have this issue of trust and, and how easy, how difficult it is to, to grow and build and how easy it is to blow and what do you do when you blow it. So we have this principle then of you know, development, self-awareness, collaboration and all of that good stuff so back to back to the original point well how do we fix all of this okay if you look at let's move outside (laughs) let's move outside leadership for a second and look to the world of sports right look to the world of entertainment you know musicians look to the army you know the military you know at the highest levels look to explorers look to sailors captains of ships look to pilot look to a million leaders. different surgeons huh leaders look to leaders around the world not just in the commercial you know environment they journal i remember our old ceo marcus 10 years ago 12 years ago he said to me on my first day with him he said hey antonio do you journal and i said no and he said, oh, well, why is that then? I said, probably because I'm not a 16-year-old Victorian schoolgirl. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what I thought. Dear diary, Mr. Darcy was mean to me today, right? And I, I hope he does notice my bonnet in church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Um, I hope the weather isn't going to show. How, how did Dave respond? So he said, a really interesting thing. He said, well, go and find... So do me a favor, go and find eight of the most successful people you can find in any walk of life, in any industry. Eight, pick any name from Steve Jobs, which was what he said at the time, right down to anyone you know, the most successful people. So I said, okay, I will. First thing I did was I went to my, I went to Google and I said, benefits of journaling. And there were, there were then 18 and a half million <laughs> responses. Uh-huh. I thought, shit, maybe 18 and a half million people are right and I'm wrong. So I thought, okay, well, let's leave room in my head for self development 
comes from this principle of self-awareness, comes from this principle of evaluated experience and wisdom and insight. And I started researching, 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 and I thought, these guys do it. Maybe I better start journaling. Then my issue was, well, how do I do it? What do I write? Da -da 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 -da. What's my payback? What's the point? Well, let, let's, let, let's deal with that then. So what should people be writing in their journal? So my view, and we could have a whole deep, heated debate about this, but my view is that let's say you decide to go to Harvard for an MBA to look, you know, get an MBA. In, it doesn't have to be Harvard any, anywhere, right? You're going to get an MBA in something. Oh, you're going to learn chemical engineering, right? Whatever, right? There is probably a curriculum that you should be following that actually gets you to this, you know, this, this point of um, competency, at least, in chemical engineering. Yep. So I believe very strongly the lead, uh, that journaling, if it's part of your development plan, shouldn't just be free form and write what you want. It should actually follow a very clear path and process and, and, and there should be things that you can measure against it. And there should be, and this isn't going to surprise you in the least, it should be based around what is this ideal model that we're going for, people development, company development, self-development, and so on, right? So what we're, our development, our personal development, leadership development path should be reflecting the thing that we're trying to achieve. And therefore, it can't be just free form and whatever you fancy and dear diary, Mr. Darcy was mean to me today. So it should be guided rather than unguided. It should be over a period of time. You and I know, Marcus, that sales training doesn't work. Right. Yep. In the same way, right, that it has to be reinforced over time. We have to change people's thinking, conceptual attitudes to things and beliefs. Right. So that doesn't you don't turn that ship around on a dime. You know that and I know that. So it needs to be it needs to be intellectually challenging enough to keep, you know, these best of the best really, really well stimulated and and um, it needs to have them think about things in a new way. So it needs to be guided. It can can I make one, one really important point? Yeah. Um, many people get writer's block because they try and write to a statement. Yeah. Always make sure you write to a question because the brain has to answer it. Yeah. So we have a two-year program where every day we tell you what to write, how much to write, specifically about our model, and when we take an assessment, we then find that somebody's issues are, let's say, part of our, we've talked about it a lot, leadership development is developing trust. If you have trust issues, I mean, people, you don't trust people, therefore people don't trust you because that's how the world yeah. works. Then it should be specifically, that should be the thing that we concentrate on or one of the things. So, so it should be, it should be over time, it should be five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. And it boils down to this. So do you remember that first leader that said, could you write down a list of leadership truthfulness? The other thing he said to me after about two or three months, he said, have you got a minute? <laughs> I thought, okay. Your it's heart sank. It's an afternoon. The woodshed's coming. Yeah, right. He said, um, he said, I got two questions for you. I said, yeah. He said, uh, did you earn your money today? And did you try your best? And I went, did I earn my money today? Well, I must have earned my money today, I said. He said, why is that then? I said, well, because I came in early. I was the first one in. I worked all day. I didn't take lunch. I've been doing this and this and this and this and this. I'm normally the last one to leave. And I worked my ass off, so I must be earning my money. He said, oh. He said, so, okay, I'll give you a tick for work ethic, he said. But um, what about commitment? I said, there's a difference. And a lot of leaders, when you say, tell me who here is committed, right? They say, oh, well, Tom. So, okay, well, why Tom? Well, he always volunteers for tasks. He's the first one in, he's the last one out. If I send an email, he'll answer it on a Sunday, right? And I go, oh, so he believes there is value in, in hard work. So he, he right, so he, he gets work ethic. Talk to me about commitment. He said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, commitment is doing the things that you don't want to do because maybe they're unpleasant. And it's a willingness to do those things because did I earn my money today goes to the not did I work hard today, but was I committed today? Was I, was I prepared to do the difficult things today to 
you know, move the flag a little bit further down the beach. So then he said, did you earn your money today? I said, well, I still think I did because of this, this, this. And I said, okay, good. I'll give you that then. You earned your money today. He said, did you do your best today? I said, well, I think I did my best today. He said, well, okay, what's your best? I said, well, I did this, this, this. And he said, that's not your best. I said, oh, well, I also did this, this, this. And he said, no, that's not your best either. He said, best is, best is a really high bar. Best is like personal best every day. You know, in the Olympics, the guys are running around the track. Yeah. Did you get a personal best today? No. Best is the 200-pound, the 100-pound lady lifting up a car to, to release a trapped child. That's best. Did you do that today? No. Okay. He said, most days, well, every day he asks you a question, did I earn my money today and did I try my best? He said, the answer will always should always be yes to the first one and it should almost be no to the second one. And if you can know why... Is it try or do your best, the question? Because trying to do your best... It's did you do your best, not did, did you, you do your best. Yeah. The best so then the first chapter of this book is what's your leadership report card look like? If the people around you were to write your leadership report card, what would they say? Would you get a star right across the board? Because if you don't, whose fault is that? Now, you and I, Marcus, know that it's the leader's fault, right? So if you're not getting a star right across the board from everyone, then there's work to be done, right? So part of this journaling process and this, this reflective reflective and reflexive and evaluated experiences every day, every evening, you've got to say, what was my re leadership report card today? Where could I have done better? Where should I have done or said something differently? When I said this, what could I have said to make it better? And unless we do this every single day over a period of time, we're not going to improve. My team is Manchester City. And there's uh, Pep Guardiola is the coach, right? And uh, they're pretty good. They're excellent. Now, Kevin De Bruyne is, is probably the best midfield, attacking midfield in the world. Are we talking hockey here? <laughs> <laughs> any, pick anything, right? Pick anything. I, I'm teasing. Go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But these are the best in the world. What's Kevin De Bruyne doing on a Wednesday morning at 10 a.m.? Probably training. He's trying to get better, right? And this guy is the best. He's like one of the best in the And every single day intentionally tries to get better. And he's, and he's uh, the best. A couple if of anyone... episodes ago, I interviewed a chap called Gary Bamford, and he was head right. of recruitment for the SBS and SAS. And what was really fascinating was interviewing him and a couple of really phenomenal leadership and high-performance coaches. So these deal with the top 1% performers worldwide and get them better. Uh, and the consistency here, and it is really all about creating consistency. Yeah. It's about creating certainty because yeah. I, I think what, what seems to have been lost um, is an understanding that most of us will wallow in our comfort zone. We yeah. know the patterns, we know the different elements, it's all familiar. And mm -hmm. if we're going to make progress, the leader's job is, first of all, to create safety and mm -hmm. to create an, at least systems and processes so that there is some element of control or at least the illusion of it. Um, and they have to mentor people through this difficult uh, process because whatever happens, change is inevitable. And so they need to understand what the patterns are they need to create the conditions of safety. And they also need to create certainty of focus and activity. Yep. Because one of the huge problems is that people go into the chaos, but they can't see the patterns. And so they'll dr uh, drift into the chaos and then back into their comfort zone. And so they never make it over to the progress that they need to. Now, I think one of the big challenges here and I'm really curious uh, where innovation comes in and how you build that into the journaling process, because I think too often people forget that the really bleeding edge of leadership is fostering and creating the conditions for innovation. Perfect. Great question. So we, we do a whole chapter on insight, 
So insight leads to innovation. You've got to be able to see something slightly differently. And we taught, we give in the book about 20 different examples. So I'll just share a couple with you. That, and there are lots of apocryphal stories, but I tried to do a lot of research. And we talked about people like Steve Jobs, we talked about Sam Walton at Walmart. What did he do that was innovative? We talked about, we talked about the lad that there was a, in England, we have double-decker buses, <laughs> which we tend not to have in America. Uh, so I'll make this. I'll make this short. So anyway, a, a new bus driver, a guy that just passed his test, sits behind the wheel of his bus, which is a double-decker bus, which is fourteen foot six, I think. And uh, he's given his route. He's never run that, done this particular route before. It's another route, and he knows how to drive his bus. But anyway, he takes a wrong turn down a, down a road. And uh, he finds himself uh, approaching uh, a, a Roman stone bridge, which is <laughs> 14 foot two. And he thinks that the bus is clearly going to go under this bridge because that's the route. And anyway, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> so this this bus finds it. Fortunately, there was no one on the top deck, and this bus finds itself stuck under this bridge, which is a national, you know, I don't want to say UNESCO World Heritage Site, but it was a national yeah. uh, heritage uh, monument. It's two thousand years old. <laughs> yeah, at least at least right. So this book is this bus is stuck. So instantly, you know, the police show up and the cordon off the roads and all of that kind of stuff. And and the bus company sends out people and engineers. And the local museum sends out, you know, their archaeologists and all that kind of stuff. And they're trying to figure out how do they get this bus out from stuck out from under this bridge. They don't care so much about the bus, but they want to really, really protect the bridge. So people are filling sandbags and all of that shit, which is seems to be a prerequisite every disaster. And anyway, they're trying to, and they got men with welding equipment to try and cut this bus out and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, a local schoolboy is walking past the site and he sees all the hubbub and the kerfuffle. And he goes up to a policeman and he says, what's going on? And the policeman says, oh, well, here's what's happened. And the bus is now trying, everyone's trying to figure out how to get the bus out. So the, the lad looks at it for a second. And he said, well, why don't you just let the tires out and reverse it out? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, the tires, right? We all know that story. And, and that is insight. In the same way, you've heard of batter shoes. Batter shoes in the, uh, in the Victorian era, the best shoes in the world are made in the UK in those times, in those days. And everyone was looking for new markets. And everyone sent a representative from their shoe company they sent them to Africa, all around the world, looking for new markets. And they all telegraphed back saying, nope, there's, there's nothing here for us. No one wears shoes. The back to shoes representatives went there and went, this is where we're building our next factory because no one here is wearing shoes. So there is a point then if we're going to skate to where the puck's going to be, if we're going to future-proof ourselves and our people and our business, if we're going to, because what got us here ain't going to get us there, right, then there needs to be somewhere a principle of, you talked about innovation, that I call it insight. Now, so the question then is, does journaling work towards developing insight? And I'll, and I'll really ex quickly explain why it does. What a lot of leaders do when you say, well, tell me about, insight they go oh you want to know about the r&d department no i don't want to know about the r&d department tell me what you're doing to produce you know to to generate specifically amongst managers people anybody some insights where you can go and they genuinely don't know but you can you can industrialize insight steve jobs did it lots of companies do it walmart do it what insight is what a lot of leaders do is they look at data and they look at data and they hope that by trawling through the data, they'll get to insight. They don't. The well, they don't. Is, the insight's in the small data, not the big data. Right. So data's this, very, very broad, and there's no shortage of data in most companies. You, and accountants kill trees every day is just to create reports of data. Information is a subset of data, right, which is, which is less than. So information is how do we take the some salient pieces 
of that data and turn it into information. And a lot of leaders go, well, make decisions based on information. No. Knowledge then is how do we how do we then link the pieces of information to so that we can be able to make knowledgeable decisions now. And that's the leading them through the chaos. Yeah. Okay. We're not that's there yet. The dots. Yeah. The next one then is insight is well, we need to get from here to there. How do we do that? So knowledge is this. Lots of companies have lots of like cultural knowledge embedded around the organization. I tell you a great story about that. We don't have time. It's about uh, the, the world's largest clay pigeon manufacturer, right? Uh, called Hepworth, who I used to be the managing director of. But they had to shut down the whole of the organization because the guy that knew how to make clay pigeons died. No one else knew how to make them. There's, there's one company that yeah. makes the gold wire that goes into all of the NASA satellites. And he taps it out and he's 72. Um, and this is really interesting because the world's <laughs> the whole thing is hot. <laughs> so anyway, so insight is a subset of knowledge. What is insight from? Wisdom. Now, wisdom is, so insight is we need to get from here to here. That's insight. Wisdom is here's the path to get us there. Right. So data, information, knowledge, insight, wisdom, impact. Right. And so in terms of the going through our two year program, we have about 30 modules just to develop that process of data, information, knowledge, insight, wisdom, impact. Antonio, first of all, thank you. This has been incredibly insightful. And the invite from earlier was definitely. Let's do it. Uh, Let's do that. And I'd like to take this conversation uh, further and a bit deeper because I think it's uh, really important that we start building and preparing people uh, to build resilience, especially given the turmoil that's coming our way. If we thought the last three years, the next five to seven are going to be really tough. How can people get hold of you? Just search mydailyleadership.com. And you'll get to our website, learn all about the program, learn all about the assessments, learn all about our products and services, or email me. And I genuinely mean it. And people, when I say it, every time I'm interviewed and people do, so I love it, email. It makes me, gives me a sense. And your email is? (laughs) Antonio at mydailyleadership.com. Antonio at mydailyleadership.com. Excellent. Uh, Antonio Garrido, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who needs to know about this stuff. If you have a team, get hold of the book because it is really very good and incredibly insightful. And if you want to get hold of Antonio, feel free. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the blurb and the commentary, there's a link if you want to talk about coaching or training. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.